So um, we had talked about the uh, body of Christ being one. And in particular, um, uh, Paul makes the very strong point that uh, everybody has different gifts. And um, I dwelt on that quite a bit because when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, there are big segments of Christianity that insist um, you must speak in tongues or you, you must prophesy or, you know, any particular thing. It's usually you must speak in tongues. That's usually the one uh, that they get all wound up about. And, uh, you know, they, they ignore other gifts that uh, are of great service uh, to the body. And he goes on into that discussion of, you know, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels in chapter 13, verse 1, I do not have love. I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And I gave some illustrations uh, to, uh, you know, my grandson who <clears throat> would just sit on the floor with a wooden spoon and bang one note song endlessly on, you know, the, the frying pan or whatever. And, oh, it fills his heart with joy. Uh, but there's no love for the rest of us involved in that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yes, you have a gift. Yes, you have rhythm, but you're driving us crazy. You're not building us up. You're not doing anything, you know? I mean, for a moment you were as a grandchild because we were just happy that you were happy. But that was moments ago. <laughs> and the moment is fading and passing and you're not actually serving any of us anymore you're just banging away and now i need to be clear uh, maybe i'll even go into the description of um, how i uh, came to speak in tongues myself i had an experience uh, with that and on around 1990 um, didn't know what to do with it laid it to rest with the lord uh, for a handful of years uh, revisited again he and i alone um, had the experience subsequently all over again um, and not much practical use for it. And then some years later, uh, explained he, he explained to me very carefully uh, what prophecy was and how he was going to use it in my life in ministering to others uh, with prophecy. And um, that more than anything, uh, the gift that he had uh, given me was uh, the ability to teach that, uh, you know, I might not even have a, an expansive knowledge and understanding of this book and things of that nature, but, um, the ability to help m make it make sense to people and to apply it to their lives that, you know, it's that started with teenagers and youth groups and, uh, helping them see the validity of God's word and the application to their lives. That's that's what he wanted me doing. And uh, that's what I've continued to try and do over the years is to the best of my ability, uh, read it and explain it. And, uh, you know, live with it that way. So <clears throat> the gifts, uh, he even asked the rhetorical questions, do all speak in tongues, do all, which the answer is no. Not everyone does speak in tongues at the end of chapter 12. Not everyone prophesies. Not everyone has these particular gifts. And I dwelt on the fact that, you know, a lot of times that nobody wants to point out that the gifts of helps are listed in here. And it's 
Literally a gift that's as simple as it sounds. Wanting to help other people. You know, why, why, why is it that the church doesn't say, hey, look, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the one thing we want to see happening in your life is that you have the gift of helps. You know, no, nobody, uh, you know, dwells on that much. And, and honestly, I think if we were talking about, right, fruit of the apple tree is, uh, I'm not trying to talk down class, but the fruit of the apple tree is, Apples, right? Not cherries or, you know, apples, right? Fruit of the Spirit is love, okay, for others. Uh, love for God, love for others. And if, you know, you go through that, you know, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, those are attributes of the love. So honestly, the individual, uh, you could say, in all cases that has been filled with the Holy Spirit is going to have a desire to serve others. So, so really, helps would be the one, <laughs> right, that would almost certainly be necessary. Like, uh, you know, the thing we're looking for in your life as a sign that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit is, is that you have a desire to be a servant, to do and care for others. And yet the church doesn't dwell on this. It dwells on the one that's the most difficult to verify. You know, uh, well, you just said one phrase over and over again, and none of us understood it. Well, it's my own special prayer language. And I'm not mocking that because I speak, again, I speak in tongues, but I've only found use for it in my own life. I've never found application for it in the body of Christ, in the church. I, I haven't found any use for it there so far. So, um, you know, the, the selflessness of being filled with the Spirit. I think that the church would be wise to derive from these very chapters what it is Paul saying about what it truly means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and I think that fits into the whole argument that uh, we're going to get into about, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, Certain gifts having come to an end, others uh, still being used, and you know what is it that the church should be looking for today? I think understanding the the foundation of what it means to be filled with the Spirit is most significant in interpreting those elements of even these passages. So uh, let's just uh, start right at verse 1 of chapter 13 and kind of plow ahead. Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, again, we should pause and give an even greater definition to love here, because one, you know, the two commandments that Jesus summarized the New Testament and all of the law into, Right? He didn't nullify, or I guess he did nullify. Scripture even says that. But he didn't you know, destroy or do away with the law. He completed 
the law, and he makes the point, you know, the greatest commandments of the law are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And truly, we understand that as a product of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind will cause you to love your neighbor as yourself. So these are the loves or the love that we're talking about is number one, it begins with loving God, right? There are many people that claim to be Christians who do wonderful benevolent works for the cultures that they live in, but they do not love God. They, they, they allow for sin in their own life. They're incredibly disobedient uh, to the word of God. They encourage others to rebel against the word of God. They renounce the deity of Jesus Christ. Right? Because of their religion uh, that they even label as Christianity, they do wonderful benevolent works for people, but they do not start that work with the love for God, the love for Jesus Christ. So this has to be rooted in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And that's the God of the scripture, Jesus Christ, creator of all things that we're talking about, not the God of your understanding. As, you know, uh, Mr. Wilson, founder of AA, put it, you know, you don't get to interpret who God is. He, you know, he is the one true living God. And you love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then subsequently, as a result, you will love your neighbor as yourself. So though I do all of these things but have not love, I am nothing. Though I bestow my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, in verse 3, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind, right? Make sure that, that it continues to be kind. Because we do that thing where like, I have put up with this, you know, as long. And we try to make it sound like we've endured a great deal. But what we've done is all along the way, we were building up a head of steam. So we really weren't being understanding we weren't being forgiving and gracious and kind you know we were sweeping the problem under the carpet while we got more and more upset until finally we blow our stack you know it, 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 love is patient combined with being kind so here by definition uh, you know love suffers long and is kind love does not envy love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, all of those pride-filled things, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I need to clarify again, this isn't naivety that's being encouraged here. We, we are called uh, you know, to use knowledge and discernment. Uh, you know, in our study in Philippians uh, on Thursday, Paul specifically encourages the Philippian church to, yes, increase in love, but with, you know, knowledge and discernment also, so that you don't waste the Lord's resources uh, in your life, time, money, energy. Yes, be loving, but use knowledge and discernment also, so when we're being told that, you know, love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, it's not the idea that the church is just stupid and puts up with anything. Uh, we are called to be a discerning church, you know, wise as serpents, yet 
harmless as doves so that we can, uh, you know, effectively, uh, you know, you, you take the situation with Ananias and Sapphira, come in and lie to the Holy Spirit as they lie to Peter, and the Lord strikes them dead. I mean, that fits in this discussion right here. That, you know, yes, it endures all things, yes, but therein, the Holy Spirit, because of love, set a precedent for the entire church. I don't mean to preach any new doctrine or anything false, but it wouldn't surprise me to get to heaven and see Ananias and Sapphira there. I'm not saying they are. I don't know. I mean, they sinned and sinned against the Holy Spirit and probably received eternal judgment for that. But see, God struck them dead for an example for us so that those that followed in the church would avoid hypocrisy. You know, so he, he was, you know, sort of setting them up as the giant billboard to say, don't do this. <laughs> That's loving. You know, it's, it's loving, tragic, but it's loving of God to buy, hey, you know, you struggle with me saying that? Samson is listed in the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. That blows my mind. Like, how'd that guy get in there, you know? He rebelled against God literally to, the, to his death. As he pushed those pillars down, he said to the Lord, grant me the strength to do this because of what they did to my eyes. <laughs> From selfishness, his whole ministry was motivated by selfishness. He doesn't even say because of how they've defamed your name or how they've persecuted your people. Or, or, or how they've, you know, murdered the nations around them because of what they did to me, me, mine, I, <laughs> you know, and he and he commits suicide in the process, and then he's listed in the hall of faith. Wow, that's that's a lot to consider, right there. So you know, here we 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 need to reserve our judgment. Let God be the one who weighs in on those things, but we need to have discernment. Uh, when we uh, hope all things, endure all things in love. Now, in verse 8, when it says, love never fails, this is where the controversy really begins. Verse 8, love never fails. Whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. So, there is a, a segment of Christianity that has become referred to as cessationist. And, uh, you know, the term to cease is why they are called cessationist, meaning that the gifts particularly of prophecy and speaking of tongues have ceased and they are no more. So that group is known as the cessationist. Uh, they take this verse... And they rightly interpret uh, the language that's in it. So if you come across their detailed explanations here about the gifts of the Spirit, you shouldn't think, oh, well, Pastor Will and those Calvary Chapel guys just have never examined the original language in close detail, so they didn't know that the gifts were going to, you know, of prophecy in tongues were going to come to an end, okay? Well, we do know that, and we understand what the language says here. But the passage as a whole 
tells us something different. So let's look at what the scripture says. Love never fails, never comes to an end, never ceases. But whether we might say where there are prophecies, they will fail. And uh, the uh, term that they translate there is with an abrupt end. A sudden ending. There will be a sudden ending to prophecy. And then it says, you know, and where there, whether there are tongues, they will cease, uh, which implies a dissipation, a, a slow tapering down. Okay. Now, I'll just say from my perspective and our perspective as Calvary Chapel, um, yes, it says those things, but we do not believe that we are in the time where prophecy has abruptly ended, nor tongues tapered off to cease. We, we don't endorse that uh, frame of mind, and you'll see why as we move through this. For now, or for we know in part, and, and we prophesy in part, I, I, I added a now, that's not in there, verse 9, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part but when that which is perfect has come then that which is in part will be done away so before we move on from there he gives us a time an unknown timeline here putting it in present tense when he penned this to say currently we only know in part. Then, which is associated with when the failing and when the tapering off occurs, we will know in completion. Okay? So, so do we all understand that when prophecy comes to an end and when tongues have tapered off to ceasing, that we will know, and we're not at the point where we're discussing what yet, we will know fully. Currently, we only know in part. Now, you're going to see that what he's talking about is our knowledge of God in the following verses. When that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. And then they liken speaking to tongues, the cessationists liken speaking to tongues as child's babbling. Now, Casey Hill and I were sitting at the sound booth this morning and his youngest daughter came up and was doing that chattering thing that they do when they're super little where she has... You know, maybe a head full of knowledge as to what she's saying, but we don't have any understanding of what's coming out of her mouth. And she is just blathering on nonstop. Just, I mean, she rounds the corner, just chattering, 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 chattering. And we're both going like, yes, wow, that's wonderful. You know, because we've got no idea what it is that she's saying. And it is. It thrills, you know, especially her father's heart. But my heart to see a little girl wanting to communicate with us, having a warmth of relationship to where she's just willing to fire away and give us all of what is in that little head. Yeah, it's cute. 
it's entertaining. It's it's even fulfilling in our relationship. You know, if if we had been harsh and said to her, you know, you have no idea what you're talking about and stop that chattering noise and I don't want to hear, you know, she would have been shocked and hurt and offended and stopped. And instead, the encouragement from both of us, that isn't that great? Just keep going, kid. Lay it on us. To imply that it's the same thing, that speaking in tongues is the same thing, encourages the church to participate in nonsensical things. Okay? Uh, The speaking in tongues that occurs in Acts chapter 2 is language. It, It is not drivel. The men who spoke in tongues... The scripture tells us that they spoke of the wondrous works of God. What does that mean? You fill in the blank. I I can't give you any specifics, right? But they were not just rambling one word over and over and over again. They were speaking in what the scripture refers to as dialecta. Dialecta is not one word repeated over and over. Okay? We speak in a dialect. Some Mainers speak in a different dialect. (laughs) Right? They do. That's diction. You know, their cadence and their flow. You know, I had guys from New Jersey come up and their water is all, you know, and they're like that. You know, now they're talking to Paul Reynolds, you know, who's saying, you fellow just get here this morning. You staying around a while. You had the day back. You know. Misfire. Nobody understands anybody at all. They're both speaking English, but the dialecta is is just off enough that nobody is understanding anybody. And I literally have to step in, like the little known superhero, you know, communication major, and be like, "Hey, <laughs> you know, these guys are wondering if they can get some fresh water." And uh, Paul would like to know if you guys are staying throughout the rest of the day or if you're going to be leaving soon. <laughs> you know, they, uh, dialecta, right? Miscommunication. Here, though I speak with the tongue of men or of angels, but have not love, I'm just a clanging sound. All of those men present in Acts chapter 2, and we get the long list of countries that they're from, understood what was being spoken. You know, this little group hears that that guy is speaking in our language right there. He's a Galilean. You know, he's a down Easter. But he speaks our language with perfect diction. You know, those from Macedonia, Mesopotamia, you know, all over the region understood. You know, they were able to hear different people speaking of the wonderful works of God in their own dialect. They were speaking languages. This isn't mindless drivel up there. This is people speaking of the wondrous works of God in, at that time, known languages. And they even wonder amongst themselves, how is it that we all hear them speaking in our own languages? They specifically recorded that in Acts chapter 2. How is it that these are Galileans and yet we all hear them speaking in our own language? Languages. Tongues is literally languages. 
Remember how it all fell apart? You go back to Babylon or a Babel, and here's Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, I'm getting it all mixed up, aren't I? Uh, Nimrod, who is saying, through knowledge, we're going to build this tower that will make us gods. That's literally what he, we'll build a tower that leads to heaven. What he was saying is, through knowledge, will achieve godhood. And God was offended by that. He, he didn't look down and say, oh, they're going to be able to do it. What he, what he said was, I'm offended by that. They think they're going to elevate themselves to the same level as me, right? See, God was offended by that one other occasion we're aware of, right? When Lucifer said, I will exalt myself above your throne, and he was cast out of heaven. Uh, here's a man who's following the same philosophy of Lucifer and saying, we'll build a tower, fill it with knowledge, literally books and scrolls, a massive library. We'll fill it with things that humanity can study until they've made themselves God. T tell me our society is not engaged in the same thing right now. Trying, they've rejected God because of education. They've convinced themselves that through the acquisition of knowledge, they worship the intellect. And God puts an end to it. How? Confusing their languages. That's where language enters in. He confuses their language. Mighty rushing wind, rather than scattering humanity, draws humanity together. What is this noise? And when they arrive, they hear men speaking in each of their languages the wonderful works of God. And then, then when they make the foolish accusation, these men must be drunk. Peter steps up and then he speaks in one language and delivers the gospel message, not speaking in tongues. He speaks in his language, delivers the gospel message to them. They repent, and thousands come to the Lord. And the church is born in a way it hadn't been previous to that. The seeds were planted, but boom, the church explodes, which is what Jesus said. Remain in Jerusalem until you've received dynamite. That's literally what the Lord said. You'll receive the, the dudamus, the power of dynamite will come upon you. And the church exploded onto the scene. The gifts that were poured out, Peter reaches back to Joel and says, this is what was spoken by Joel. And in that, he actually references when it will come to an end. All, it will continue all the way until right, the sun is darkened and the moon. Right? And he's talking about that's, that's stuff that's going to be happening during the tribulation. So, so the implication that the gift of the Spirit is going to end is to ignore a lot of what's written here. The, the cessationists say that that which is perfect is the Bible. And once the Bible came, we didn't have need of the Holy Spirit anymore. So now we follow 
the scripture and we have perfect knowledge of God's will and his whole completed message. And so therefore, the gifts are not needed anymore. Now, I'm going to give you a couple examples of why they're needed in just a second. But I want to look at what is said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in light of that. So we know in part, we prophesy in part, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. For now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, so in particular, that statement of now I see in a mirror dimly, then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know just as I am known. Okay, uh, we are known, Paul was known in the same way by God. Completely. We know God in part. And we know God as though we were viewing him through a mirror dimly. Now, I, I don't want any show of hands. But uh, <clears throat> some of us have been to the schools of higher learning and, you know, graduated from such glorious institutions like PCJ, you know, Penobscot County Jail and Hancock County Jail and otherwise, just certain years of graduation, School of Hard Knocks, and uh, they uh, they know we were untrustworthy, so, you know, they, like, for instance, don't give you glass mirrors, and they're not overly concerned about your looks when you're incarcerated, and, uh, they give you a highly polished piece of metal that's bolted to the wall. That's that's what you get. And uh, it's difficult to catch your reflection in it. You, you look in it at first and everything's really kind of distorted. And you learn to just sort of shift around and, okay, I don't have any toothpaste on my face. And I guess I can go down and work in the kitchen or whatever. You know, It's just, it's just there to give you the vague imagery. Right? So it was with mirrors in this day. It wasn't until centuries later that we learned the process of, you know, glazing the back of glass. And that was only became really effective once we discovered how to make glass smooth on both sides. Blowing glass and making it flat on one side accomplished part of that. But, you know, it wasn't until we were floating glass on top of molten tin that uh, you know gravity made it flat on one side and the tin made it flat on the other side and so you get finished smooth glass and then you can blacken it and silver it and you got highly polished mirror out of the deal that's centuries down the road here wasn't even as good as what we had in those schools of learning it was hammered metal And they did have methods of banging and stretching that metal and banging and stretching that metal and polishing it, but it was hammered metal. And so you really had to tilt that all around to get an eye. If you just picked it up, took the first glance, I mean, it's going to be like some kind of circus mirror, you know? It's got all distorted. 
Another thing about these mirrors, I'm not just doing the typical will thing and just going on and on. I mean, I know I'm doing that, but <clears throat> the distorted view of what's in there is collected through different glances. You have to move it around and see yourself in part and in pieces. And the other aspect to the mirror is everything's reversed. It's all the opposite, right? That's why when somebody says, you got something right here, you're always going over here. You know, it's, just, it's the other side that they're, they're explaining. You're seeing things in reverse. Our entire faith is based upon our view of God and our reversal of experience with it, right? You want to be the greatest in the kingdom? You've got to become the least. You, you want to live in a fulfilled way in this world, then you must die. Uh, you know, you, you want to rise, then you must fall. Everything is backwards, right? The thing inside us says, look out for number one. Go after what you desire. Reach for what is yours. And what does that do for us? It actually gives us the opposite result, doesn't it? It causes depression. It makes us anxious. It destroys the very things we were trying to accomplish. You know, I, I took a job years ago for a tree company. And, uh, you know, any of us that have backed up trailers know how challenging that is. Uh, it's even more challenging when you've got a little tiny chipper behind your wood truck. It's right, it's right there, right up behind the truck. Short little thing. And, and every time you turn the wheel, it's just suddenly jackknifed. Suddenly jackknifed. Suddenly jackknifed. And, you know, and you're trying to do it with mirrors. So the mirrors are lying to you. You're turning right, it's turning left, and you get that pivot in the middle, and it's just, it's all, you know. I literally got off from work. We having to back this thing down through people's yards and into these little tiny locations to do all this tree removal. And uh, I, I was so frustrated, I asked the boss, hey, can I just stay after work and learn how to do this? I was hours in the yard. Oh, when I came back to work the following Monday, my, my backing skills were dramatically improved. My brain had wired up some connections as to how to watch in those mirrors and turn and gauge and move. And boy, uh, you know, my boss was blessed by the fact that in a few more weeks, I could thread that thing right back down into the yards like he could do it, you know, to the point where he's asking me to do it. Just, hey, you know, back the truck down in there, Will. And just, you know, the skill with the reversal of understanding. Our walk with the Lord in the beginning, you know, marriage is so frustrating. And to learn, oh, if I just serve this person, right? I, I want them to care for me. But if I go after this, from the perspective of, why don't you take care of me? Uh, then I drive that person away. I create the opposite effect of what I want. If I go to my boss and say, why won't you give me a raise? If I just show up there early, work hard, serve him, make his circumstances well, he takes good care of me. If I do the opposite thing, if I'm turning against the very nature of my heart, 
if I'm going... See, this is part of how we know the perfect has not come yet because everything is reversed. We still see spiritual things backwards. You may be more skilled at handling them. Oh, now look, fast forward. Jesus has come. He snatched us all off this planet. There he sits on the throne. We're all gathered around him, right? Calvary Chapel down east has its little, you know, booth. We're all gathered together, hands raised. We can't believe it. You know, you can't believe I made it. I can't believe you made it. We're all singing together. Why? Because there's Jesus right there. Just, I'm not going to have any problems serving you. You're not going to have any problems serving me. me. There's not going to be any internal struggle of, well, I'd really like to be selfish right now. I'd really like, you know, attention to be focused on me. None of that's going to go on because I'm going to see face to face then. What I'm currently seeing right now is I have to take this mirror right here and I have to examine my life. With this mirror. Oh, that's not my illustration, right? James said in the book of James, if you read the word and do not do it, you're like a man looking into the mirror, seeing his face and immediately forgetting it. You must be a doer of the word also. So that means I got to look in here, right? Follow this. Okay, here's one we all know, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Everybody knows the golden rule. No, they don't. No, because the ones who aren't manually looking at this, seeing how it applies to themselves, and then steering their heart the opposite direction, all they hear is, don't do to people what you don't want done to you. That's not what Jesus said. It's not even what he meant. Right? Guy makes you mad. Go over there and knock all his teeth out. Okay? Jesus said, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Okay, so I won't knock his teeth out. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, go do for that man what you would have him do for you. Do for me? Oh, wait a second. That's a whole different thing. So for somebody to come over and humbly say, hey, man, you seem really upset. Can I just get you a coffee? See, that's a different thing. That's doing good. That's, that's having to examine this and take it way further. So, so I think you understand what I'm saying, that presently... We are still seeing things backwards, only in part. And I have to shift this mirror around from this passage over here to this passage over here to that passage over there until I get the whole picture of Will and how he should behave and then go apply it to life. A mirror dimly is how I presently see myself and the Lord the perfect has not arrived. The, capital T, definite article, the, perfect. His name, Jesus. Jesus will arrive someday. And when I see him face to face, and I know him the way he presently knows me, 
No need for prophecy. No need for speaking in tongues. Is Jesus going to be impressed if I say, hey, let me show you something. <laughs> I can pray in tongues. Want to see it? And I start with, and he's going to be like, you poor simpleton. You know, I just, he's in front of me. He's there. He's the fulfillment of all of these things. Oh, no, there's a bigger point in this church. There's a bigger point. I think the church needs to speak in tongues today. I think the church needs to prophesy today. And the church does not. Don't, don't get me wrong. Not in the congregational meeting. I'm not going to like now say, okay, could you please just start speaking in tongues back there? You know, I'm not going to do that. Uh, speaking in tongues, people say to me, Austin, what use is it today? What good does it do? Why, why would we even need it? Well, how about this? Can you understand the concept that prophecy, part of it is speaking on behalf of the Lord, right? Does everybody understand that concept? So now let's take a simple application. And I'm going to encourage you the next time you're in church, maybe even tonight, as you're sitting here right now, Pray that if the Lord would have you speak to someone in this room on his behalf, that number one, you'd hear very clearly what he wants you to say and very clearly who he wants you to say it to. And then you'd have the guts when this service is over to get up and go over and say, hey, I think the Lord laid this on my heart and to share with them. That's prophecy. When you speak on behalf of the Lord to someone. And if you're thinking like, well, that's quaint and, you know, might even be effective, but I'm not really into that. Have you ever struggled so badly through a week that if somebody came up to you and spoke to you with supernatural knowledge and said, hey, I think the Lord wants me to share this with you. And it was something you needed to hear about the fight you were in. How beneficial would that be to you to walk out the door and know, and not that Evan's especially spiritual, but that the Holy Spirit has been watching your struggle. That you're not actually alone day to day as you're going back and forth between that job. See, you know, church is wonderful, singing's great, really enjoy that, but I'm out here on my own getting my you know, teeth kicked in every day by the devil, and uh, I don't think anybody's paying attention. And then along comes somebody that says, hey, uh, let me just share this verse with you. The Lord just spoke this to me, and I wanted to share this. Speaking on behalf. Okay, okay, hold the idea. I think you can see how significant and how beneficial it would be for you to act upon something you don't understand, right? And affect someone else's life. That's what speaking in tongues is. Acting upon something you don't understand and letting it affect you. Taking the time to just say, Lord, I think you're telling me to just speak this phrase as I pray alone here at my house 
as I'm having my coffee and my devotions, but I don't understand what these words mean. A simple illustration that I give within this, and this is part of the benefit I have found to having a prayer language that Paul talked about. This is part of the benefit that I have found. I think we all understand that we're engaged in a war. I think you've seen clearly enough that attacks come upon you. And you're like, this is not of this world. <laughs> like, I, I have my ordinary everyday flat tires. But this one is like the timing and the circumstances and this guy that's now screaming at me. Uh, this is like a supernatural attack. Okay, so I think you understand the warfare that we engage in, that there are enemies in the heavenly realm that attack us. Okay, so now take the concept of warfare and understand you're a soldier who is a child of the king, right? A prince in your armor down here on the battlefield. How beneficial would it be for you as this soldier on this battlefield to communicate with headquarters. Well, if your enemy can hear your prayer, if your enemy can intercept the communication, he can also act upon, counter effect. But what if your communication with headquarters is encrypted? So that you're praying only what your Heavenly Father understands. And He's communicating something to your heart that your flesh doesn't even understand. Because the biggest enemy you've got is you. You. Your spirit communicating with your Heavenly Father without your flesh, the knowledge of your brain even being involved has a benefit, as Paul said, to the inner man you can't ever understand. Pray. I would encourage you. I would encourage you to pray in tongues. To seek the Lord and just say, do you want me to do this? And if so, right? Paul's going to tell us that within the church, very specifically, the nonsense we see going on in a lot of denominations where everybody's praying in tongues, Paul specifically says, stop doing that. That is not supposed to be done. We're going to get into chapter four and 14 where he very specifically tells them how to conduct themselves with that gift in the congregation, one or perhaps two, and then only with interpretation. And if there be no interpretation, then no one should be speaking in tongues. And that includes, okay, we prayed this week, someone spoke in tongues, but does anybody interpret? No one interprets. We show up here next week. Same faces are in the room. Like, tell people, like, we shouldn't pray in tongues in this room because we were here last week and no one in this room can interpret tongues. You want to pray in tongues even in this room? Pray quietly between yourself and the Lord because it's not a benefit to this body. 
There's a whole bunch of people that have grown up in those Pentecostal circles, and I'll say that again. We're a Pentecostal church because here I am endorsing the gifts, but they've grown up in those circles, and they're like, that has to happen. No, it's specifically condemned in the Scripture, and we're told, don't do that. Don't do that in the congregation. Because unbelievers might be present, and they will walk away saying nothing more than, you guys are crazy. <laughs> it doesn't benefit anyone. When the perfect has come, which I submit to you is Jesus Christ, then the imperfect will be done away with. We, we won't need to speak in tongues. We won't need to prophesy.